Well, good evening. How you doing? Um, first of all, wanted to say thank you to uh, some new volunteers. Last week, we said we could use some help passing communion, uh, passing offering plates, which I'll ask them to do in just a second here. And we had a couple people step up, so thank you for, for your, your willingness to help out. We could always use more, so if you have a... Uh, opportunity to to be here and you don't even necessarily need to do it every single week but we would love it it would be a huge help to us so thanks for those who have stepped up um, one other announcement real quickly um, I want to uh, give an invitation to anyone who would like to join us on this next year's trip to Israel uh, professor Dr. Jim Lindsay, history, uh, professor of Middle Eastern history at CSU, and I uh, co-led a trip last year in 2016, and it was just fabulous. We loved it, and so we're going to try to do it again this year. Um, we're going to be doing an informational meeting, if you're interested, on October 16. So that's a Sunday coming up during the 11:30 service in room 214, and um, it's just it's it's an awesome time. This is this was one of our cool moments at En Gedi. You know, En Gedi is that place where David hid from Saul and, and it's just desert and there's nothing there. And then all of a sudden there are these waterfalls and, and we, we do the big hike and we're so hot and it feels so great. So we jump into the waterfalls and it's a great time. So we'd love to have you join us if you're interested. If you are, you can pick up one of the flyers. It's on our connection wall, like when you go uh, toward the mall area, uh, posters up and you can Grab one of those flyers, and like I said, we'd love to have you have you join us there. Um, we are in a series looking at the question, is Mormonism Christian? And uh, I was planning on ending tonight. Oh, before I do that, let me ask our ushers to come forward. Uh, I almost forgot. Sorry, guys. Um, I, they always go like this. They shine the plates at me. I'm like, <laughs> all right, all right, I get it. So... Uh, you guys can go ahead and pass those. Thanks so much, uh, everyone, for your generosity and giving. And so originally, it was gonna, this was going to be a three-week series. And if you were here last week, you, you might have seen kind of the look of panic on my face. I looked up at the clock, and we were like two minutes over, and I had like ten pages to go. <laughs> and so I said, can we just type, can we like pause and just pick up here next week? Uh, so thanks for your graciousness on that. The only concern is if you weren't here next week, we're kind of like jumping into the middle of our topic and that sort of thing. Um, hopefully you picked up a bulletin on your way in. Um, the first week we, we spent some time, and I would encourage you, if, if you missed a week, you can always jump on, onto the Timline website and, and watch those online or listen to them online. But first week, we spent some time looking at kind of the worldview, the story of more, uh, according to Mormonism, and uh, looked at some challenges of terminology, this idea that we use the same vocabulary but a different dictionary, and so we have to learn to scale the language barrier in order to have conversations with our Mormon friends and neighbors. And then last week, we specifically took a look at the Book of Mormon itself, the historical setting of Joseph Smith in the 1820s and, and 30s, of um, him finding the plates, purporting to find the plates, translated, and then the printing of the Book of Mormon in 1830. And then we said, well, we can actually 
take some of the Mormon leaders at their word. Orson Pratt, if you remember, we looked at, this is in your handouts, we looked at his, his request to those on the outside of the LDS church. And his request was, investigate it, look carefully. If you find it to be false, please don't, don't be disparaging, don't, don't brute force attack, but through reason and scripture, make these arguments. And so we're taking Orson Pratt, one of the 12 apostles of the church, at his word and saying we want to do that. We want to do it in a respectful way. We want to do it in a way where we care about truth. And so that's why we're doing this series. And so um, if you want to open up your booklets, if you brought – how many of you brought yours back? How many of you forgot yours and had to get another one? Okay. Um, hopefully we've got enough back there. Oh, one other thing too. Week one's – Materials are up here if you didn't get those either one of the previous weeks. They're here as well. Oh, that was the other thing. Someone also asked um, this. If you remember week one, this is kind of that map that we went over. And I've had a couple people say, hey, can I like get that instead of you know what we have in here? Uh, we're going to put this up as a PDF on the Wednesday night page. So if you go to the web page, you can just pull this down. You can print it or whatever. And again, just gives a little bit more information um, than you might have in your, in your bulletin. So here's, here's what we started to do is we started to look at, and if you want to turn to page 16, that's where we're going to pick up tonight. Again, kind of taken off from where we were last week. Um, and we looked at this idea that Joseph Smith purports to have found these golden plates that were a, a story about what Jesus did in the Americas to these Hebrew people, his appearing and, and, and the acts of those people. And that this was important because the Bible had been changed over time and things had been lost out of it. It, hasn't, it hadn't been translated correctly. And so this was kind of fixing that problem. So the content of the Book of Mormon was, was supposed to fix the errors in the Bible. And so he, he publishes it in, you guys remember the year? 1830. That's kind of an important like, date to get in your mind. Okay. So he, he publishes it in 1830. And then this idea, this was, uh, we read one of his statements on uh, uh, page 8, where he says, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. And that a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other. Now, what makes this unique, why he can say that, um, is because he, he translated, he, he claimed to translate these golden um, plates that were written in what he called uh, Reformed Egyptian Hieroglyphics. And he said that he, you know, he didn't know the language, but that he was given sort of a divine uh, ability to translate. And so the translation was done by the gift and the power of God. So there's no, you know, I, I, I took a couple semesters of Greek when I was in seminary. Um, I do not translate by the gift and power of God. It's a pretty rough translation. I need, I need some help, okay? I, you know, parsing all the verbs and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's hard work, okay? But he didn't have to do any of that hard work because he was doing this translation by the gift and power of God, and that's important to grasp. Okay, so as we look at the Book of Mormon, now oftentimes people will say, and, and Mormons are oftentimes very sensitive to this idea that 
if someone says, well, gosh, I, anyone could write a book. I could, I could make up a book and, you know, about this and, you know, God did this. And they're very sensitive to that. And so they will say things like, well, no, 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 this, this, this book is different. You, you couldn't do it. And so if you look on page 16, on page 16, this is a tract that was put out by the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, their visitor's center in Los Angeles. And it's sort of um, answering that claim. Ah, anyone could write a book. And basically what you see here is it's 30 reasons why you couldn't write a book like the Book of Mormon. That, that it stands in a unique place. And so um, you can read through all 30 of those if you want. I just want to look at numbers because I think there's problems with all 30. But take a look at just number six. This is very, very important here. Number six, if you can read that, that's small print. I'm sorry. But it says, other than a few grammatical corrections, you must have no changes to the text. The first edition, what, what year was the first edition? 1830. The first edition, you dictate to your secretary, because that's what Joseph Smith did. It. He put his head into a hat with a seeing stone and dictated this to his secretary. Must stand forever, we're told. Okay, so now it says, other than a few grammatical changes. Now, how many? What's a few? What would you say? Threes? This is a conversation we have around our house all the time. I'll be like, oh, a few minutes. And it's like 15. I'm like, that's a few. Okay. And the kids go, no, no, no. Few is two. Okay, but three, ten, fifteen, hundred, four hundred. Well, what, what, if, what if there were 4,000 changes made to the Book of Mormon from 1830 until now, or 2016? That would be a hard one to swallow. I mean, just 4,000. Now, many times Mormons have heard this from Christians. Oh, there have been 4,000 changes. The book. And they typically don't believe it because they haven't seen it. They, they really, really have not seen it. They're not simply putting their heads in the sand. They really have not seen that information in any way. So what I want to do is look at some of these... Now, the, the vast majority of those changes are, are grammatical. Okay? Um, let, me, let me give you a couple of them. Um, first, Nephi 5.11. So there's a lot of like subject um, verb disagreements. You know what I mean? Where it's plural, subject, and uh, singular uh, verb, and that sort of thing. So things like First uh, Nephi 5.11, Adam and Eve, which was our first parents. Okay, well, that's... That's that's been changed. Were um, Alma fifty three five because it were easy to guard them. That was changed. Um, Alma twenty three seven. They did not fight against God no more. So either you know double negative. So they did fight against him or they or they didn't. One of my favorite ones. Fourth uh, Nephi one seventeen. Neither were there Lamanites. No no manner of ites. So they had run out of ites. I guess. Okay, but double negatives here. Now, what's what's so troubling about this is this. Um, The original 1830 version, some portions of it read like an English teacher's nightmare, like worst nightmare, horrible. But it's typical 19th century frontiersman language grammar. And then you get to some parts that are this beautiful Shakespearean grammar. Well, what, what, 
we see is that Joseph Smith took almost word for word large sections out of the King James version of the Bible and put them. He took a whole chapter of Genesis. Uh, he took a bunch of pieces of um, Isaiah. He took the whole Sermon on the Mount and put them. And those are beautiful. They're fantastic. What's interesting is so the King James Version was was done in 1611. However, the the portion that he used it was the uh, 1769 revision of the King James. So we even know specifically which one it was. So those things are very problematic for the person looking at this and saying. Either Joseph stopped translating and then went and got the, you know, this version of the Bible and put there and then went back to translating. But what's interesting is he took from a book that he said had been corrupted and couldn't be trusted to make his own book. But let's, let's suppose you say, okay, grammatical changes, a few, again, it's in the thousands, but okay, let's, let's suppose we say, okay, I'll give you some of the, you know, grammatical Changes that have uh, taken place. The problem is it's much more than just grammatical changes. And this becomes much more concerning. Uh, take a look, if you would, at page 17. Um, page 17, this is history of the church. This is written by Joseph Smith, the first president, prophet, uh, revelator, seer of the church. Uh, if you open up a Book of Mormon, at the very beginning... Now, we don't have the golden plates, okay? The golden plates were were claimed to have been, after he did the translation, that the angel Moroni came and got them and took them up into heaven. So you can't go to the Smithsonian and see him. You can't look to see, is this a good translation or anything like that. And so at, at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, there are, are two different sections, uh, the testimony of the three witnesses and then the testimony of the eight witnesses. So these are people, most of them in Joseph Smith's family. But these are people who, who claim to have gotten the glimpse of the plates. And so they're giving eyewitness testimony to say, even though you can't check them out, we saw them. You know, we got an opportunity to see them. Okay? So this section that you have right here, History of the Church, this is Joseph Smith's account of those three witnesses when they went out into the forest. And what happened is they, uh, the angel Moroni appeared and they heard a voice from heaven. And the voice from heaven said this, these underlying words here. These plates have been revealed by the power of God. Not Joseph Smith's power, but they've been revealed by the power of God. And they have been translated by the power of God. The translation of them which you have seen. Okay, which one did they see? Three witnesses, they saw the 1830. Okay, um, is correct. And the voice from heaven said, and I command you to bear record of what you now see and hear. Okay? So if, if people were making changes, don't you think after you heard a voice from heaven saying, this, this translation is absolutely correct. The voice from heaven, that's when you would stop making any changes if you had been making changes to it. Correct? <clears throat> well, take a look at this. Look on the right-hand side of page 17, same page. This is a photocopy of the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. Now, there were no chapters and verses. Those were added later. So if you want to make a little note next to the part that's underlined so you can know where that is, this is from the Book of Mosiah in, in the Book of Mormon. You can look this up if you have a Book of Mormon. Chapter 21, verse 28. That's that underlined part there if you look it up now. Chapter 21, verse 28. And this is an example. This is what we read. We read, um, 
And now Limhi was again filled with joy on learning from the mouth of Ammon that King Benjamin had a gift from God whereby he could interpret such engravings. Yea, and Ammon also did rejoice. So what we learn here is that who, who has a gift from God to be able to interpret engravings? Who is it? King, King Benjamin has that. Um, okay, turn, turn the next page over. This is now going, we just read chapter 21, right? We're jumping back to chapter uh, 6. Same book, Mosiah, jumping back to chapter 6. Here's, here's one of the problems. We read this starting in verse 3. And Benjamin had made an end of all these things and had consulted his son Mosiah, sorry, consecrated his son Mosiah, to be a ruler and a king over his people and had given him all the charges concerning the kingdom. Verse 4, and Mosiah began to reign in his father's stead. So he's describing kind of a co-regency happening here. And in verse 5, and King Benjamin lived three years and then died. Um, and this is now it came to pass, Mosiah. Well, okay, in chapter 6, who died? King Benjamin. Well, in chapter 21, he's alive and well. I mean, he's getting, uh, you know, Revelations from God about the ability to engravings. I mean, I'm assuming it was a serious case of death and not a not a minimal one. Now, this was seen quite early on. This actually this correction was actually made in the time of Joseph Smith's uh, own life. In fact, if you look on page 19, this is the 1981 version. This is one that I have in front of me right now. This is the 1981 version. We say, and now Limhi was again filled with joy on learning from the mouth of Ammon that King Mosiah had a gift from God. So right there we have to ask the question, well, wait a minute. This is, I mean, we're changing whole people here. This is complete. But, but the voice from heaven said this, the translation is completely accurate. Joseph Smith himself said it's the most correct book on earth. So there shouldn't be these kinds of changes. And this isn't the only time that a king comes back to life. Um, uh, Ether 4.1 is, is another example with one of those changes there. Now take a look at the next page. This is, even, this is a more recent change. And these kind of grow in being problematic. Page 20. Um, this is from the book of Second Nephi. Now, if I can't remember if we've talked about this in here. Um, basically, the Book of Mormon. Uh, there's a few other things that happen. But essentially, the, the Book of Mormon is about this man named Lehi who is, lives in Israel. And at about 600, you know, the time when, like, Assyrians and Babylonians are coming in to attack Israel, he's warned to leave. And so he, to leave the coming destruction, you can read about all this at the first couple pages of the Book of Mormon. And so he and his two sons, they, they go now down to the Arabian Peninsula, and they get in a boat, and they take that boat down the bottom of uh, Australia. don't know how they miss that. But they do, and then, and then they make it somewhere to the Americas, probably Central America. And they become this great people. And so his two sons um, are, are, are Nephi and Laman. And so these two sons become these great people groups. And so the Book of Mormon is largely about the Nephites and the Lamanites. And the Nephites are generally the good guys, kind of, and the Lamanites are kind of the bad guys. And they war against each other and all that sort of thing. So um, now, back in chapter 5, 
of Second Nephi. We'll go there in a second. What we find out is that the, the Lamanites, the bad guys, because their hearts are hard toward God, God, God puts a curse on them. And he gives them a black, a dark skin so that his people won't be attracted to them and intermarry. And so what we have here in 2 Nephi 30, there's a promise made that if the Lamanites would repent. Well, let's let's read it here. Um, Verse six, if they repent and uh, then shall they rejoice and they shall know that it is a blessing unto them from the hand of God. And their scales of darkness shall begin to fall from their eyes. And it says, and many generations shall not pass away among them, save they shall be a white and delightsome people. Okay? So the promise is, if they repent, God will take away the curse of dark skin and they will become uh, white and delightsome. Because language that was used before is they, they became dark and loathsome back in chapter 5. Now, um, in, now, every edition from 1830 all the way up to this version right here read just like this. Okay, this is 1981. All of them read exactly like this. Uh, in 1978, so, you know, all the civil rights stuff is going on. Um, for, for, for the history of the church, uh, they did not allow African Americans to hold the priesthood. And we, if you remember when we talked about... Um, when we talked about this thing right here, we kind of we figured out why, right? Because they had done something bad in the pre-existence. They hadn't been valiant anyway in the pre-existence, and so they were cursed. Now, the curse wasn't black skin. The curse was they can't hold the priesthood, right? The mark to let people know they can't hold the priesthood is black skin. So um, this, this, this promise is – or I'm sorry, a new revelation comes that says, okay – uh, African-American can now hold the priesthood. And so they can go into the temple and receive their endowments and washing and anointing and all those sorts of things. Well, um, understandably, a lot of Mormons went to this passage, right? Because this is kind of a similar, you know, understandably. And so many LDS referred to this. And so thinking when, when the curse is lifted, shouldn't the mark be lifted too? Because it's promised here. And so 1978... Blacks are allowed to have the priesthood. How, how many black LDS people do you suppose started turning white? And Michael Jackson was Jehovah's Witness. He can't say that. It, zero. Zero started turning white. So in the 1981 edition, if you look on the right-hand side of your page, this is how it reads now. And many generations shall not pass away among them, save they shall be a pure and delightsome people. Now, as I've had conversations with, with Mormons and brought this verse up, oftentimes they'll say, well, white means pure. You know, they're both the same thing. Well, not, not always. You can have pure gold, but it doesn't mean it's white gold. But if it does mean the same thing, why change it? What's the need? And it's an odd time that the change was made. But the problem is this. Even making that change doesn't do away with the inherent racism of Mormonism. Turn the next page over, if you would. This is going back to that same story. Okay? Nephites, Lamanites, remember who the bad guys are? The Lamanites are the bad guys. You could, I always remember that because you think they are, the Lamanites are lame. 
So that's kind of a little way to remember it. Lamanites are the bad guys. Okay, here's, here's the situation of how this happened. It says, uh, 2 Nephi 5, verse 21, And he had uh, caused the cursing to come upon them. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair, so fair, you know, white skin, right? That's what that means. And delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. And thus saith the Lord God, I will cause that they shall be loathsome because of their blackness. To my people. Uh, jump over to Third Nephi, chapter two, verse fourteen. Now this is still in there. Okay, they haven't changed enough. I mean, this is still there. And it came to pass that those Lamanites who had united with the Nephites were numbered among the Nephites, and their curse was taken from them, and their skin became white like unto the Nephites, and their young men and their young daughters became exceedingly fair. Skinned is what that means. And they were numbered among the Nephites and were called Nephites. So even though African Americans are now allowed to hold the priesthood and go into the temple and receive their endowments and do all these things, you know, be baptized for the, the men or anyway, it does not remove the, the, the racism in it. You, it doesn't matter what changes. This is still true. It's still, a, it's still a consequence of something negative that a person has black skin. You can't change that. That's a, that's a part of the world history, the world story. And this is still in there. So extremely problematic. Okay? This idea of race is something that if you look at the New Testament, Paul, Paul said some of the harshest things. When it came to a person's race keeping them away from God or being lesser. When he talked, you remember the passage where he talked about circumcision, which was a racial issue. And Paul made this statement where he says, really, you think cutting off skin will get you closer to God? Why don't you, why don't you go a little deeper and cut off more skin? He said it a little worse than that. Because this is a matter of someone made in the image of God being degraded. This is no small thing. That's why racism is evil. Absolutely evil. An image bearer of God. Taking a lesser status because of the color of their skin. That is an evil in our world. It has been. It continues to be. Take a look, if you would. Um, page 24. Now, these are theological changes. Okay, we're seeing a lot of different kinds of changes, and there are tons of different kinds of changes. But I want us to see some categories of how the changes happen. The, the page on the left, it's the 1830 edition, if you want to write down chapter and verse where it is, because it's missing a chapter and verses. This is 1 Nephi 11, and verses 18 and 21 are the ones underlined there. Okay, um, We read this. And he said unto me, Behold, the virgin which thou seest is the mother of God after the manner of the flesh. Verse 21. Behold, the Lamb of God, yea, even the eternal Father. Now, Mormons have never been um, Trinitarian, which is what the historical church is, believing in the Trinity, that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons. There's some hints. Now, eventually they, again, you know, they embrace polytheism. And as I said a couple weeks ago, it's, it's the most polytheistic religion in the world. Uh, with, many would argue, an infinite number of gods. 
But early on, there's some hints that, that they actually, the Book of Mormon represents what's called modalism. Modalism is a heresy that the church dealt with early on in church history, like the first couple hundred years. Modalism was the idea that there's one God who wears different hats or different modes. Okay, So in the Old Testament, he's the father. In the Gospels, he's the son. And in the church age, where we are, he's the spirit. So that, that, that was the heresy of modalism. This gives some indication that probably Joseph Smith misunderstood the doctrine of the Trinity. We talked about some of the influences, culturally, religious revivals at the time, that he misunderstood the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's represented like this. Um, you can also see, uh, next page over, this is um, same book, same chapter, uh, different verse this is verse 32 he says and i looked and beheld the lamb of god that he was taken by the people yea the everlasting father was judged of the world and i saw bear record of this and i nephi saw that he was lifted up on the cross so who was who was lifted up on the cross here the father right if you flip over the next page this is the 1981 edition this is this is how it reads today now, look at this change. This is a significant theological change. Um, verse 18 of 1 Nephi 11. And he said unto me, Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of what? The Son of God. Down in verse 21. And the angel said unto me, Behold, the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. And then finally, the next page over, I looked... And beheld the Lamb of God, that he was taken by the people, yea, the Son of the everlasting God, was judged of the world. Now, this is a major theological change. Mormons, you have to understand, Mormons view Elohim, the Father, and Jesus as completely separate beings. Okay? Completely separate gods. They've just switched out which god they're talking. I mean, huge distinction. And the old one talked about the father being on the, on the cross, suffering on the cross. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, uh, he called that patroposianism, the idea that the father has suffered. And this was a heresy early on in church. But it's changed. And this is a huge theological change. See, when there are two approaches, when, when I encounter, and I do, as you do, when you read the Bible, when I encounter things in the Bible that go against what I believe, what I think, what I feel, what I'm called to do is go through the painful process of orienting myself, changing my, not, not me changing, but I'm saying um, of, of letting, letting the Bible change me is a good way to put it. I have to correct. See, the LDS church doesn't do that. When they come to something in their scriptures that they don't like, the scriptures change rather than them changing. That's not the most correct book on earth. And remember, this is all after the voice from heaven said, I command you to bear witness to the fact that this has been translated by the power and gift of God. And it's perfect. There are no problems with it. Um, What I'd like to do is this. Good, we're okay on time. So that's where I was going to end last week. And we just totally ran out of time. So it's a good thing. Um, 
I had asked uh, you guys, I said, hey, there's, there's a, a text number. In fact, you can still do this even here for this next week if we have some time. Because uh, next week will be our last week on this topic. But I said, I would love to have just some feedback, some thoughts, some questions uh, about this. And during one of the weeks, try to kind of give some semblance of an answer to those if, if I can. And so got a lot of questions. Thank you for those. They were really, really good questions. Um, and so wanted to try to address some of those if I can. Um, the, the first one um, had, to do, had to do with women and the role of priests and that sort of thing. Um, here we go. This question read, if the priesthood is only given to worthy male members and only men can progress to full salvation, godhood, exaltation, then when do these men get their wives? Do women have any choice in the matter was kind of the general question. Um, so at, at judgment, when, when judgment happens, uh, if, if a Mormon man has had the proper authority, received the proper authority, has the temple recommend, has been sealed with his wife for time and eternity, he, he has the uh, blessing of going to the highest level of the celestial kingdom. And then what he does is uh, during, during the temple ceremony, when, when people go through um, and do all that, the man and the woman, there's a time where any of you guys do the uh, tour of the temple? Some of you guys, do you remember there's a big veil in one of the one of the teaching rooms and you didn't go through it. You went around and you went into the celestial room and the celestial room represents this. Well, um, during these these temple services, a person walks up to the veil at what very long, long involved service. And they walk up and someone is behind the veil representing God. Do I don't, we didn't talk about this, did we? Okay, so someone's there representing God, and there are secret handshakes that are learned in this process that they can't reveal. There's like the sign of the, or the mark of the cross, the sure sign of the mark of the cross, I think. And, and so they go up there, and this person representing God on the other side of the veil, they do the secret handshakes. And, and when a person first does this, they're given a, a name, and they're not allowed to tell anyone. The men can't even tell their wives. The wife receives a name, but she is supposed to tell her husband. Because, and here's why, because on this day, he will call her up if he chooses to, if she's favorable to him, and he will use that sacred name that no one knows but him. So he will use that name. So he, the reality is, is that a woman does achieve exaltation uh, like, like Heavenly Mother in the preexistence, but her exaltation is completely 100% dependent upon the will of her husband. Meaning, if he calls her up, then she can reach that level of exaltation. Um, which I see a lot of furrowed brows on women, um, understandably. So, um, another question. Uh, this person says that their, their Mormon friend has told them that everyone becomes angels rather than a god after they die. Um, how do they define angel and God and that sort of thing? Remember, we have to keep in mind, all of us, God, angels, and us, are of the same nature. Okay, does that make sense? We're of the same essence. We just have not, you know, the law of eternal progression 
you've progressed more. Think of it kind of like an, in, an, in an evolutionary paradigm. It's probably the easiest way to get your mind around it. And so um, that's why this can be a little confusing. You know, like when we have the story of um, Moroni appearing to Joseph Smith in his bedroom and telling about the plates, and sometimes he's called an angel, sometimes he's called a, uh, a resurrected man. And I remember early on, he's like, well, you can't be both. Yeah, actually, you can. Um, because remember, we're all the same essence. And so for a person who's not married, if, if you had a, a you know, temple recommend and you were a perfect Mormon, but you, you weren't sealed, when you get to this level, you become like an angel, kind of a servant, um, angelic being who's not married and loses the ability to, to procreate. That's why the sealing in the temple is so, is so important. So that's kind of the whole angel thing. If, they, if you have a conversation and that comes up, that's what's meant. You know, that's sort of the life there. Um, oh, one question was about sin. Uh, the question of, since sin is viewed differently by Mormons, what is the significance of Jesus' death, resurrection? Um, let me go to a place. Um, Second Nephi 2 is a place... Second Nephi chapter two, verse 22. Um, so the question is, okay, Adam and Eve, original sin, they rebelled, they're in a garden, they're told not to take this. They do. When they do, they're aware of their nakedness, their shame. And so they run from God's presence and eventually they're kicked out of this unique uh, existence that they have in the presence of God and God's blessing is ultimately lost. Um, and I'd mentioned earlier that the fall is viewed as almost a positive thing. Now, this does not mean Mormons condone sin. Okay, Mormons are very moral, upstanding people. They, they, they don't condone sin at all. But they look at original sin differently. Let me, let me read this passage from 2 Nephi 2.21. Um, and now, behold, if Adam had not transgressed, that means rebelled, you know, taken of the fruit, he would, um, he would not have fallen... But he would have remained in the garden. This is all things which were created would have just basically everything would have like froze. Nothing would have changed. Everything would have been there eternally. Progression wouldn't have happened. Okay. Um, and they must have remained forever and had no end. Everything would have stayed in sort of a stagnant kind of situation. Um, and they would have had no children. Wherefore, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. And then it goes on. Basically, it's this idea. How was it that Adam and Eve, um, it wasn't until what that they knew they were naked? Sin. Okay. Well, once you're naked, then you kind of figure some things out, right? You're in a garden, someone else is there, and hey, how you doing? So... You're not going to have children unless you know you're naked. And that, so, you know what I'm saying? The awareness of it is what allowed children. And so that was, it was a necessary thing. And so that's why I say they speak of it as almost like falling upward, the fall. And so Christ's sacrifice, so sin is kind of a necessary thing. See, Christians would say sin was not, it, it, it didn't have to be. It wasn't a necessity. Okay, it did happen. But it wasn't a necessity. In this system, sin, experiencing sin, and in fact, if you, if you remember this list right here, receive a body. That's what the angels and, or that's what the, 
uh, demons can't do. The second one is experience sin. You need to do that. You need to experience sin so that you can then have faith and repentance and baptism, receive the Holy Spirit, obey the laws of the gospel, become temple worthy, temple ordinances, so that you can continue on that eternal law of progression. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. I wish we were in a smaller classroom because we could do like talking, live Q&A. This is, this is hard. I don't like it when we can't do that. Um, you could just yell out, I guess. Um, a lot of people were asking about um, other problems with the Book of Mormon or the Mormon scriptures. Uh, and I would just point you – I don't really have time to get into a lot of it, but you know, bring up like DNA evidence – uh, there's a fabulous video called um, DNA versus the Book of Mormon. I would encourage you to take a look at. That's in in your uh, bulletin on page. I think it's six. Is is like a resource? Is it six? Six. Um, some resources there. That source at the bottom that says Source Flicks. Um, this is a group that has produced some fabulous videos where they go interview. For instance, in this one, uh, Mormon anthropologists, among other things, and ask them questions about because th- th- there there are ge- there are geography problems with this, um, meaning none of the locations or lands or anything ha- have been identified aside from the Hill Cumorah, where Joseph Smith uh, said he found the place where the final battle happened. Um, there are archaeological problems, meaning all of the coins that are mentioned, none have been found. There are um, anachronisms. Anachronism is where something from the wrong time period, like if, I, if, I were to, if you were to read a book about the history of Fort Collins and you find out that it was this fort outpost in the, what, what year did Fort Collins was founded? Was it the 1800s? 1800s, okay. So it's a book about the 1800s. It's this fort outpost. And you read, and you know, they say, you know, they got a new sheriff, and so the new sheriff came, and he he came into DIA, and then, you know, you'd go, DIA wasn't around. That you know, that was an insertion. That was an anachronism. Well, in in the Book of Mormon, you have horses existing in the Americas, because remember, the Book of Mormon takes place like 600 BC to 421 AD. All of it takes place in here. So, um, you know, prior to Columbus, you've, uh, you've got wheat here, horses here, certain, certain kinds of metal that simply weren't there. Now, Joseph Smith is around in the 1800s. There are wild horses at the time, so he probably assumed, well, that's, it was, it's probably been that way, you know, for a long time. So there are a lot of problems like that. There are also other um, anachronisms like, let me see if I can find the, um, okay. This will actually get us on maybe to our last question here, too. So this is 1 Nephi 14.10. Now, <clears throat> anytime you have a Book of Mormon, this is kind of actually nice. You can look down the bottom right-hand corner of the page, and it gives you the general time period when this is supposed to have taken place. So this says, between 600 and 592 B.C., very early on, okay, 600 B.C. Now, when I read this statement, you don't, don't think about the meaning of it, but think about what doesn't quite fit for someone, a Jew, Hebrew, 600 B.C. And he said unto me, Behold, there are saved two churches, only, uh, only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God, the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whosoever belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongeth to the uh, great church 
which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. Now, what is 600 B.C. Hebrew? What doesn't fit? Church, yeah, it's, it, it's unlikely that, I mean, church means called out ones, but church of the Lamb? That, that wouldn't have, that's a New Testament concept. You know, John's one of the first ones, the prophet John, when he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes, the sin of, takes away the sin of the world. That's the first connection there of Jesus playing this, you know, there's, that's not in the Old Testament. So it, tons of things like that that are just... Anachron- that, are, that are put back into this time period that just don't make sense. They don't fit. They wouldn't have been understood by the audience at the time. And there's, the list goes on and on and on. Um, another issue problem is, is the DNA one that I mentioned. If, if you turn uh, the very introduction of the Book of Mormon, which gives kind of, hey, here's the overall story, here's what happens. And it speaks of, remember, the Lamanites and the Nephites. And it says, uh, this group is known as the Jaredites. After thousands of years, all were destroyed except for the Lamanites. And they, so the Lamanites still existed, he said. And they are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. And so this has been the contention for, or, or the uh, claim is that the, the uh, Lamanites, who were cursed with the dark skin, who are Hebrews, are the principal ancestors of the Native Americans. Well, you know, over the past, I don't know, 20 years or so, as they've been doing DNA work, they've discovered that the, and they've done all the tri, all the, all the different tribes, so many, even non-existent ones down as, you know, the Incas and of, you know, from their bones and that sort of thing. And they've determined that, that they're actually from uh, Northeast Asia, uh, Mongolia, Siberia. That's where they trace their genealogy to that's what they're who they're most closely related to there is no hebrew connection at all there but see in the 1800s there was, that was a big question on the frontiers where did these native americans come from and five years before joseph smith's book uh there was a book that came out um origins of the hebrews where this man proposed i think these people are hebrews one of the lost tribes kind of thing so you see kind of that swimming around in the water at the time. Um, so uh, t- many, 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 many problems. Okay? I'm, I'm bringing up only the Book of Mormon and only a few select ones. But as you go to the Book of Abraham, and all, there are tons of issues and challenges. A friend of mine who um, runs a ministry which is geared toward reaching out, equipping the church, equipping people and reaching out to Mormons and other groups, has has said that, um, and I take him on authority for this, is he says that the, the LDS church in any place where Google exists, and he's quite serious, it's treading water and it's not growing. It's in the places where people don't have access to information, to basically to the Internet, that it is growing in leaps and bounds. But anywhere that Google is, because information is so readily available. I mean, you could go home and search and, and pull up the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. You know, people have done that. They've pulled it up and they've gone through and you know, found all the 4,000 changes if you have that much time. So this information is out there. It's very, very much out there. Um, oh, that was the other thing. That was the last thing I was going to go to. Um, one of the big objections, uh, concerns that, that our LDS friends will have is they say, 
um, why don't you think we're Christian? You know, you don't call us Christian. You say we're not Christian. That's, you know, that's offensive. Um, let, let me show you. So this is um, Gordon B. Hinckley. He was a previous president of the LDS Church, prophet, president, revelator, seer. He was responding to the idea of these. Do uh, you know what fundamentalist Mormons are? Many of these groups still practice polygamy. Okay, um, the church in, in about 1890 stopped practicing polygamy, and it's it cannot be practiced today at all. Well, there are these fundamentalist splinter groups that still practice it, and he's responding to the idea of people saying fundamentalist Mormons. That phrase, oh, that's a fundamentalist Mormon group, and he says this: I wish to state categorically that this church. LDS Church has nothing to do with those practicing polygamy. There is no such thing as a Mormon fundamentalist. He says it's a contradiction to use the two words together. Does that make sense? Like you get his line of reasoning. What he's saying is because that group does this or practices this or believes this, they have stepped out of Mormonism. They have removed themselves from the pale of Mormonism. Okay. That's simply what Christians are saying about Mormons. It's not, it's not hate speech. It's, it's not mean. It's simply saying Mormon Christian, to use ex-president's um, words, it's a contradiction in terms. It's a, it's a married bachelor. You, you can't have both of those. Um, and here's, here's kind of the last... I think piece that I'll go to in about that. And hopefully, let me just say this about this last piece is hopefully you guys have seen over the past two weeks um, that when, what, what we talk about when we talk about Mormonism is a radically different animal than historic Christianity. It's radically different. It's like you're playing two totally different sports, you know, but, but using the same language on it. Um, one question that people asked a lot of was the role of the prophet and uh, what they uh, can do, can't do, and all that sort of thing. Let me just give you two statements that I think will be helpful. Um, let's see, I don't want to go there. Let me go here. Uh, this is a zoomed in uh, on the Journal of Discourses is a collection of talks and speeches and sermons given by the general authorities by the prophets and that sort of thing. This is one, uh, this is Journal of Discourses, Volume 9. Uh, Brigham Young gave a speech at the Tabernacle in Salt Lake City in 1862. And this, this was his testimony from that. Um, <clears throat> he says this, The Lord Almighty leads this church. What's this church? The LDS, right? Leads this church and he will never suffer you to be led astray if you are doing your duty you may go home and sleep as sweetly as a babe in its mother's arms as to any danger of your leaders leading you astray for if they should try to do so the lord would quickly sweep them from the earth so what he's saying is there is no possible way that a leader of the LDS, the president, could ever, even if he wanted to, he couldn't lead you astray, teach you false doctrine. It's, it's impossible. God would wipe them off the earth before that even happened. 
um, to kind of reinforce this idea. Um, this, this is the Mormon Scriptures, Doctrine and Covenants, DNC. Um, this is an excerpt from President uh, Wilford Woodruff. He was the fourth president of the church. And it, it's about the manifesto or the revelation that polygamy needs to stop. So in 1890, in the 1890s, we talked about this before, they put a ban or a hold on polygamy. Well, you've got a lot of people going, wait a second, Joseph Smith said this is something that will last forever. It should never stop. It's a part of the central part of the gospel. And so you have people questioning, could you guys lead us astray? And so this is what uh, the president at the time said. He said, just backing up what the second president, uh, Brigham Young, said also, the Lord will never permit me. Or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray. It is not in the program, he says. It is not in the mind of God. If I were to attempt that, the Lord would remove me out of my place. And so he will with any other man who attempts to lead the children of men astray from the oracles of God and from their duty. So what he's saying here is that it's... It's not even possible for a Mormon prophet to, to lead you astray. So the Mormon prophet really has kind of unlimited authority. He's, he's the channel between God and his people that are, that, are, that are leading it. And so as a Mormon, now you might talk to Mormons who they say things like, well, you know, the president said this. Well, that's just kind of their opinion. And the question that we always need to ask is, Okay, if I wanted to know about Mormonism, who do you suppose would know more, you or the president, the prophet, the revelator, the seer, the one through whom God speaks? And they have, well, probably the prophet. Yeah, I would agree. So now you might talk to Mormons who don't hold to certain things, and that's good. But what we need to show is that this is what the church teaches, church, LDS church teaches. And this, this cannot be questioned. You can't go against it. Because the, the prophet would never leave you astray. Um, we need to stop. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm two minutes past again. So, uh, would you do this? Would you stand with me? This is always the hard part. Is this like, I wish we could do so much more. But that's okay. Uh, next week... If, if you're able to come back, what, what we're going to do next week is look at, I, I'm going to suggest, and I, I said last week, that um, there's one reason why you shouldn't pray over the Book of Mormon. And we said because there's a different standard in the Bible. It's not prayer. It's comparing it to already revealed scripture. But, but there's also a second reason and a real danger. I would suggest a spiritual danger in attempting to access get a spiritual message from the spirit world um, un, unqualified, untested that there's true danger and the Bible actually warns against what it calls uh, doctrines taught by demons demons teach doctrine and so there's a real danger of doing that and so I want to talk about that next week but then also a, a model of how you and I can identify false gospels false Jesuses there are an enormous number um, of let me just read a few words from Jesus to you. Matthew 24, 5. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Mark 13, 6. Jesus says, many will come in my name saying, I am he. He will mislead. 
Luke 21, 8, Jesus said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name. On and on and on. There's about 15 or 20 times that Jesus warns this. So this is something that we, I think, have to be vigilant about. Love, total love, right? But we need to be vigilant lovers of the truth and lovers of people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We are thankful that that your kingdom grows unhampered. That, as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against your great kingdom mission. And whatever might come, you are building your church, not us. We are your church, but you are building it. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would, would actively use Timberline Church, actively use the other churches in our community, your one body, and that we can be informed, we can learn to, to rightly divide Scripture, and that we can then be able to reach out and share the life-saving message of Jesus and his gospel to Mormons and to everyone else. Uh, we are grateful for your grace, Lord. Go with us, guide, protect, and transform us into the image of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.